Hey, y'all. From NPR, I'm Sam Sanders. It's been a minute. Today, we're talking to Meg Wallitzer. She is a fiction writer out with a new book. The book is called The Female Persuasion. And the hype for this book has been spectacular. The Washington Post called Meg, quote, the novelist we need right now. This book is on virtually every 2018 must-read list. And already, Nicole Kidman's announced that she'll be in the film adaptation of this book. So here's the thing. I read the book. It is seriously worth all the hype. I'll tell you a bit about it. The Female Persuasion tells the story of a young woman named Greer who is sexually assaulted in college. And while she's dealing with that on campus, Greer meets an older, famous feminist who was given a talk at Greer's college. Her name is Faith Frank. And this opening scene becomes a start of this relationship between the two of them that ends up lasting for years. Greer ends up working for Faith Frank at a feminist organization she runs. And the book goes on to reveal how the relationship changes and ultimately falls apart over time. The book deals with these really fascinating ideas, what it means to have a true cross-generational relationship, what it means to be a woman and help other women, what it means to make compromises for success, And why sometimes relationships just have to end badly. But even besides the book, Meg said she wants to, quote, wear the sandwich board for fiction. And she does. She offers this really strong argument for why, in times like these, when the speed of the news can drive you crazy, why now we need fiction more than ever. All right, here's Meg Wallitzer and me in our Culver City studio. Enjoy. So you are, okay, so you came here from, what, KCRW? Yes. You're busy on book tour. I'm I'm in the middle of it. I was on All Things Considered. Yeah. Uh, I was on Amanpour uh, on TV. That was was scary. Uh, And uh, I don't even, you know, I'm just going from thing to thing, doing a lot of readings. Do you like it? Yeah, you know, I do, actually. This time, it's very, there's a lot of energy around it. And um, yeah, I do. Yeah. Yeah. So this is going to be so weird, but go with me. Okay. I was on vacation last week, so I was finishing up your book while on vacation. Mm-hmm. I was at a friend's wedding uh, on a ranch in the middle of the hill country in Texas. Mm-hmm. It's one of those weddings where they tell everyone, come out like Wednesday, Thursday. We have a series of activities and events planned before the wedding on Saturday night. I brought your book to read because I didn't want to hang out with folks that long. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I'll sit in the cabin and read. But the bride asked me one of the days, where were you? We didn't see you today for field day. And I was like, I was reading the book. And she said, well, well, which book? And I said, The Female Persuasion. And she goes, it's on my list. I want to read it. And I said, well, I'll give it to you next, but I'm going to give it to you after you, her, after you sign it. <laughs> All right. So before we leave here. I promise. I'm going to have you sign this book. It'll be my wedding gift to my friend. A set of flatware and The Female Persuasion. <laughs> That's all you need. <laughs> yeah. And it was also weird reading a book that is in so many ways about how people without fail eventually let you down. It was weird to read that at a wedding. Yeah, I know. Well, we'll have to give that couple a chance. They might be different from everybody else. They're going to they're gonna be different. Yeah. I can just feel it. Yeah, yeah. So I want you, I guess, to describe this book, if you could, in 30 seconds for people hearing this conversation that haven't read it yet. Sure. It's a book about female power and making meaning in the world and also about the person you might meet who changes your life forever. It's about the relationship between a young woman who meets a famous feminist who kind of takes her under her wing and it goes from there. It's just sort of looking at how we live, how people live their lives. Yeah, yeah. Was that 30 seconds? That was even better. You have a career in radio. Uh, excellent. <laughs> um, some, some, some have called your book, this new book, a Me Too book. 
Would you agree with that? You know, the book has come out in a moment where a lot of the themes in it are being talked about in a very new way and the Me Too movement is happening and all of this is happening. But of course, I've been thinking about these for a long time. I mean, it took me over three years to write the book. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think these are are old ancient ideas, misogyny and... uh, female power and assault that you know exploring some of those things they're they're there well yeah and and, and it's funny like I had a question written for you where I wanted to ask about how like in the book a lot of the conversation is about generational and other divisions within the feminist movement right and my first crack at the question was like, well, how has Twitter exacerbated these things? Because there are little nods in the book where these critics of the foundation in the book use the, the hashtag finger sandwich of feminism. And mm-hmm. I thought, oh, that's so of the moment. But then I stepped back and I was like, those divisions have probably been there from the start before social media. We just see them in a different way now. Yeah, I mean, the thing about writing about two generations, as I do, because the relationship between this young woman who uh, has, is groped by a frat brother on campus and uh, meets a famous feminist and then goes to work for her, uh, which I should have used during my 30 seconds to not not add that. Um, These two women who are, you know, Faith, the older famous feminist, is 63 when they met, Mm -hmm. when they meet, and Greer Kadetsky, the young woman, is... uh, 18, they grew up in different worlds. Yeah. That's the thing about different generations. They saw the world that they came of age in, which I think really, really matters, mm-hmm. is a different world. Mm-hmm. So, of course, there's going to be a divide. We we understand that. And, you know, to some degree, there's a sense of the media likes to uh, heighten a catfight idea. Mm-hmm. But there, of course, are real differences and real mistakes and real things that that can be corrected in all generations. But I think the idea of the desire for equality runs through the generations here and out there in the world. Yeah, I mean, because by the end of the book, a new, younger character yeah. is introduced, and her whole thing is like, none of the old ones get it. No, None right. of the old uh, ones get it. No. And it's like, everyone feels that way when they're that young. Yeah, everybody does, and feels like you have thoughts for the first time. Uh-huh. It's, it's just no one else like, ever had this idea. No, no. Duh. And I, I love that about, you know, writing about young people allows you to be young yourself in for about a minute but you can really think about idealism that you might have had but it's not that all young people are idealists i mean there's different kinds of people within social justice movements people approach things differently and i'm trying to kind of give a panoply of what is it like for these different characters yeah yeah and you know i i, I was thinking a lot after i read the book about you know this older feminist that takes a younger woman under her wing. And, and I wanted to ask you first off the bat, was there a person like that for you? There were a few people like that for me. I think that I have been very, very fortunate that when I was young, a series of older women were very, very generous to me. Um, One of them was the writer Nora Ephron, who was... You know, as you know, just wonderful, interesting, accomplished woman. But she she was just very, very kind and interested. I mean, I guess that's the thing. I So I had written this book and she turned it into her first film that she directed called This Is My Life and very few people saw it and we should put them all in one room and <laughs> have a focus group and talk about it. <laughs> Although when you start telling people what it is, they remember it, they didn't remember the name. It was a, about a stand-up comic, Julie Kavanagh and her two daughters. 
And it was really, for her, a very personal story about the sort of tensions between work and motherhood. And she saw something in it. And then over time, we became friends. And she always asked about my work, wanted to see it. Mm -hmm. And I would write novels and send them to her and, like, wait by the phone, like, waiting for a date. You know? No, because it the idea of someone you admire somehow admiring you is like a, whoa, did that really Mm -hmm. happen? That's kind of amazing. Mm -hmm. And she was very, very supportive if she was sort of, you know, felt interested and she had lunch with people. We played Scrabble. I I just really loved her and it meant a lot to me because it made you want to see sort of, it made you want to be better I think when someone is waiting for something that that you've done. Yeah. Do you think that that kind of thing someone in an older generation taking a youth and helping to guide them, is that happening more or less in the time we find ourselves in now? I think right now, so many things are going on that I have seen, and I, I don't have any uh, quantification for this, but I have seen a lot of acts of generosity among people. And, you know, sometimes, often, it is older people saying, here's what I know. Mm-hmm. You know, because like without thinking, I might say, oh, call this editor at this magazine. Uh, that that piece sounds good. I don't want to get anything out of it. Or people have said that to me. Because you do at least remember when you were young and starting out yeah. and didn't know anything. Yep. And how did you get a way in? It required that somebody took the time to not say, hey, I'm busy, I'm busy, you know, get out of my way, kid. But just sort of said, oh, right. Yeah, that's funny what you did. Or I like what you did. Uh, call this person. Yeah. And I think right now, where our tensions have been so fractured and we're frightened about a lot of things going on, um, it may feel extra good to do that to somebody. It mm-hmm. may feel like you're doing something. Mm-hmm. You're helping in some oh, way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and like I've found in my career, it's never just a meritocracy. It's never just how good you are. Someone has to like you. Someone has to Absolutely. want you to go to some that of next it step. Is, some of it is luck. Some of it mm-hmm. is being there with that person who likes you yeah. at that moment. Yeah. It's, a, it's a whole range of things. So it, as much as you can sort of be there in some way and see different things, even, you know, you meet people who say, that thing you said to me meant something. It's not that you helped them, but then they saw something in themselves and maybe did something, were a little braver to do something else. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's like a weird range. You don't know how... We don't know how our lives are affected by other people. It's like a weird interconnecting system. It is. It is. In fact, I'm going to hit you up today for uh, some references. <laughs> That's <laughs> yeah. fine. I'll, I'll be slip my I resume have. across the table right. right now. Right. As right long now. as you sign this book for Angela, we're fine. <laughs> as long as you look at my resume. <laughs> so a friend of mine who covers books for NPR I had a chat with her months ago about what things should be on my radar for the show. And before she had even read your new book, she said... You got to do this one. It's going to be great. I feel like the expectations for this book have been so high because of your previous work. How does it feel to be a writer at this phase where we're, we're all waiting for the next thing you write as opposed to earlier? I don't think anybody ever forgets the earlier. I don't hmm. think you ever forget when you were sort of waiting to find out, did you sell your first novel? Did anybody like it? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I sold my first novel for $5,000. and In what I, year? In 1981. Oh, and not, I, not bad money. Not bad. And I thought that money was going to last a long time. And in fact, I'm almost out now, you know. <laughs> so, but I remember that sort of uncertain self, excited, uncertain, cocky, but really like afraid. Like, And then, you know, I have to sell it. Will anyone like it? Will anyone read it? Can I keep doing this? Um, 
you don't lose that. I think that mm. you keep these selves inside you like one of those Russian nesting dolls yeah, 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 yeah. you know so there is that sense in me but then of course if you have a readership look i am incredibly grateful i think fiction writers we are grateful for readerships because we live in a non-fiction world where uh, you know things are happening so fast and people are afraid and looking at the news what can fiction writers give i mean i asked i asked myself that like you have to make it that fiction isn't a luxury item, but is another place to go for truth. And I think that that's always something incumbent upon us. Like, I want to wear the sandwich board for fiction because mm. I believe in it. The way I, I think about it is imagine if it were taken away. You know, if if you lived in a world where people, no one read novels, like, what what would that be like? I yeah. get so much from it. I mean, there was a study that the New York Times ran years ago about how fiction teaches empathy or gives people the capacity for empathy. We all knew that. But we finally had the science to back it up, yeah, yeah, and yeah. that makes sense to me. But I think that when you do have a readership and there is an expectation, the danger there is, well, what am I giving them? Do I give them the thing that I did last time mm-hmm. but with different names? Yeah. Uh, you know, same but different? Or will they still be my readers if this new one is about an asteroid hitting <laughs> those kids who went to summer camp? You know? Yeah. Um, and I think finally what... What I the way I approach it is that I want to kind of wipe all of that away and say, what is the book that I want to find on the shelf? And that's ultimately the thing that I think you really have to do. That look, it's wonderful to have readers. Uh, you don't know how long they're going to be around for. Writers want to be read, and the conversations around one's book are very heartening yeah. because people are talking about your characters. They use their first names as if they are coworkers. Oh, yeah. You know, hey Greer, said, I was I was I was straight up talking to Z this morning. Oh, excellent. How's she doing? <laughs> She's doing I haven't good. spoken to her for a while. Yeah, it's a little demented, right? But yeah. I think that that is really the way it is sort of ideally mm-hmm. supposed to be. But I think finally just sort of kind of saying I'm clearing the decks and I'm thinking about the next book that I'm passionate about. Because if that's not what it is, it's it's not going to be good. Yeah. You mentioned earlier in your response fiction helping us find truth. Yeah. What is the biggest truth in this new book? I think that the path to making meaning can be helped by other people, but ultimately it's never going to be the path that you thought it was going to be. Mm. Novels are not, they shouldn't be polemics. They probably follow a twisty road. Mm -hmm. And I think again and again, I'm surprised by where people end up. But it really is about people who sort of want to make meaning in the world, but it's never going to be, it's never going to wind you up at the place that you thought it was. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there were so many truths I found in this that I am still thinking of. You open this book with a young woman who is very driven and wants things and is let down in a certain way by her parents. Yeah. And as her career blossoms and her life becomes a full one, what I saw happening for her and for all of the other major characters in the book is that like I said earlier, everyone you love, given enough time, will let you down. Oh, yeah. I'm just waiting for that to happen here. <laughs> just like sticking around. So you're you love me. <laughs> no, I mean everyone, not oh. just everyone you love. Everyone. I'm broadening into everyone. Sorry, forgive me. No, I don't, uh, I'll accept it. I, um, no, I, I'm teasing you. I, know, I, I, uh, I think that, um, 
if you follow an arc of characters, mm-hmm. you're going to be surprised. You're going to be disappointed. One of the things that I have to do as a writer mm-hmm. is allow my characters to essentially disappoint each other and yeah. tolerate readers kind of saying, wait a minute, that's annoying to me and writing to you on the various platforms uh-huh. at which they can reach you. <laughs> but you have to let people be disappointing. You have to let that happen. Because that's human nature. That's really human nature. Yeah, it is. I mean, I, it absolutely is because it, this idea of perfection doesn't happen. Yeah. Closure even doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. You have to leave characters sort of dangling off a cliff and you have to let readers know that what you're trying to get at, you're trying to grapple with how we how we strive, how we disappoint, all of those things. And what novels can do, I think, I mean, they're snapshots of a moment in time or a bunch of moments in time. There's no way into a novel. Novels, to me, are kind of like advent calendars. There are a lot mm. of doors that you can enter. Yeah. Um, and I think that the ones that I have chosen here are, I hope, ones that show us who these people are. Because in a novel... I think the ideas, at least for me, the ideas could never be bigger than the characters. They really need to work in concert with each yeah. other. And I want to write a novel with ideas in it, but uh, big ideas in it, but I want it to come through the characters. Because I think what you remember of the novels you love is character, yeah. finally. And that's these characters, I, I'm haunted by them. And you do this wonderful thing several times throughout the book where you tell the same story oh, through different characters' eyes. I love to do that. I love to do that. How I'm, long have you been doing that? I'm Rasha Meg. Um, <laughs> I, I think that I've often done that because there is no one truth about what an experience is yeah. like. And it, as you reprocess it, you see little details that you didn't see the first time. And I just, I'm thrilled by the small details and how revealing they are of a person. Yeah, You know, because novels don't take place on any day. They take place on the concentrate of a day. Mm. So these are heightened moments that you're writing about, and they're going to look really, really different from different perspectives. Female perspective, male perspectives. Oh, yeah. um, so the I, Corey and Greer courtship told through oh, both of them. Yeah, yeah. I, I was like, Whoa. Well, especially in that case, the boyfriend and girlfriend who are experiencing sex together yeah. as teenagers, they have very, very different yes. ways that they've approached it, and we only learn it when we keep filtering it yeah. around. Yeah. I think that writers... Fiction writers have to let themselves be really, really open to the way a story is revealed. Mm -hmm. And then, I mean, one of the greatest weapons, I think, in a writer's arsenal is revision. Mm. Because I can just make horrible mistakes again and again, and you still have a chance to sort of repair them when you see them anew, when you print them out. I, What I like to do is I sort of go and I print out what I've written and I go sit somewhere and I look at it. A friend says, put put your prose in a different font and then it looks like a whole new book. Really? Exciting. Yeah. Tip. (laughs) Tip to your writer listeners. But you see, you see things that were like overkill or really overdetermined, and then you can pull back and you have a chance to do it. Mm. Because you can't do everything as you're writing, but you try to do a lot. Mm-hmm. And then you just continue to sort of fix, 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 to get to what you what's most important. What's most important that you want to get across? When you're doing that thing where you are speaking through the eyes of so many different types of people in this book, will you ever say, all right, I'm writing this scene as a... 17-year-old boy, do I need to consult a 17-year-old boy? You know, I like to show things to people to make sure I got things right later as opposed to having them have input early on because I want it to be a real invented experience. I want the characters to just 
not be every boy or every girl, but to really be who they are very much. So yeah. I try to kind of let it go through that. I mean, I was a teenager once, yeah. and, you know, that's the thing. It's like we're writing about different generations. I mean, I will call uh, young people sometimes. Like when I was... When I was um, doing some of the intense scenes on college campus in 2006, I would call my editor and her assistant would answer and I'd be, hey, before you patch me through, when you were at college, what kind of a feminist were you? Okay, great, thanks. Now patch me through. <laughs> you know, you're looking, it's, you're looking for um, help getting things right, making sure that nothing seems wrong so that it stops the whole narrative. Mm -hmm. But I kind of want to be as free as I can to have invention early yeah. on. All right, time for a quick break. When we come back, why you won't read the names Obama or Trump in Meg's book, BRB. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Berkshire Hathaway Home Services, whose knowledgeable, high-caliber network agents see a house as more than just an investment. They respect your life and the true meaning of home while guiding you through the emotional journey of buying and selling. And they'll help you contemplate the deeper questions that are good to ask. Whether you're ready to buy or sell now or thinking about it for tomorrow, get to know a Berkshire Hathaway Home Services Network agent today. Hey, I'm Kelly McEvers, host of NPR's Embedded. And coming soon, we have a new episode about Scott Pruitt, the head of the EPA. It's a story about Pruitt's life in the Southern Baptist Church, how he handled a major pollution case, and why he sued the EPA 14 times. Just search for Embedded on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. So much about this book feels perfectly situated in the here and now. But then at some moments when I was reading the book, I was like, oh, she's not trying to be totally in the today. For instance, this book is about this modern era, but you don't mention Trump by name. You right. don't mention Obama by name. Right. Why not? You know, again, people read your books in the way that they do. Yeah. I would just say that while it's come out in this Me Too movement time, what I want in fiction is something that feels like these are things that that we've been wrestling with and that we will wrestle with. Yeah. And you can continue to wrestle with them. Uh, unfortunately, some of them we've been wrestling with forever. Some things about men and women, misogyny, some of yeah. these ideas about female power and a, a country's ambivalence toward that. The minute you mention people by name, like leaders by name, yeah. um, the reader knows it can picture them perfectly. Everyone has the same view in their mind. And their focus is taken away. And their focus away. is taken away from the characters of Faith and Greer and Corey and Z and moved into these, you know, funnily enough, public figures are like the characters in the novel that we all share. Hmm. We don't know Hillary, but look, I'm calling her Hillary. Yeah. Hi, Hillary. Yeah. I don't know you. Why am I calling you Hillary? And if you, you were, and, and like if someone asked you to write a Hillary short story, you could do it right now. <laughs> yes, exactly. You could. And there are certain tropes and there are certain things that we feel we understand about them because they have become the characters in our lives and in our dreams yeah. in a way. Everyone can imagine a conversation with Donald Trump or, or Barack Obama. That's right. You can That's do it. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I think that uh, I want the characters in my novel to 
dominate the novel and the, the narrative in the novel. And I want the idea of what's going on in the culture and what's going on politically to be there sort of unnervingly. I mean, at the end of the book, the one thing that I did do was go back into the novel after I'd finished it, after the election. Mm. I didn't, I never planned for this book to be up to date. I mean, it's sort of like writing about technology yeah. when suddenly it's dated in about <laughs> yeah. one second. Yeah. Hey, put on Napster or whatever <laughs> they're going to say, uh, you know. Yeah. It sort of cheapens it. It makes it be like the other things, the other things that might be truths in the book are then thrown away with the eight-track tape deck. Yes. And no writer wants that. But I did go back into the book after I'd finished it because the election happened and I was pacing my house feeling my apartment that's it's that's a short pace i live in new york city <laughs> i was pacing the house kind of like a bull like on election night thinking what does this mean what is going to happen is this real and i started thinking in the sort of days and weeks after that i was editing best american short stories as well at the time and i was thinking about fiction and what we want fiction to do mm-hmm. and with regard to this book in the last chapter i thought i want to dip back in to my characters, thrusting them forward into what someone calls the big terribleness, because it's not always that things are going to maybe be a little better for women and a little worse, but you keep going. What if things really sharply, darkly change? So I took a moment to go back into the novel and speak to a world that was still whirling and unfinished, and I didn't even know what it would look like Mm -hmm. a few years into the future. Mm -hmm. And I was very, very glad to do that, because... No one knows. So I really wanted to sort of thrust forward and keep out the names. I mean, I'm saying the big terribleness, but we know what that means. But I'm going to show what it feels like Mm. rather than naming names. Do you think this current political moment, real life, real time, represents for you and for others a quote unquote big terribleness? It does. Yeah, I think it does. And one of the ways one of the ways that it does for me is that it is so dominant. It is so present. You can't turn it down. I remember there was a, do you remember the short story by Vonnegut in the collection, uh, Welcome to the Monkey House, Harrison Bergeron, where they had to wear headphones. And I think when they had a thought or an interesting thought, like loud sounds would come in. <laughs> That's how I feel all the time. With our politics right With now? our politics, the loud, booming narcissism that's coming to our heads makes it so hard to traffic in nuance. And I think what novels can do mm-hmm. and what I hope to do in a novel is to sort of be uh, an antidote, not to not to politics and not to the current moment, but to things that feel unnuanced. And that's, I mean... And to the constant stream of... Ugh. Yeah, the constant stream of that to control the stream. When you read a novel, I mean, I what I love about fiction, I mean, m- among the many things I love about it, is the idea that this book is sort of waiting for you when you need it, mm-hmm. when you're there. It's this... At the cabin in the hill country. At the cabin, at the wedding. At the wedding. Yes, this is all <laughs> leading back to your wedding that you went to. Um, but the book by the bedside at night, for instance, to me is a source of great solace. It's a friend. It's a friend, whereas Donald Trump is not my friend. And the politics of this moment upsets me. They're not friendly politics. They're sharp-elbowed politics. And if you like the current president or not, there still is a certain level of frenzy that has not stopped since Election Day. It goes beyond where you stand politically. It's that it's very, very loud, and it's dissonant, 
and it's relentless. And I think the relentlessness also makes it makes it hard for fiction writers to think, where do we fit in? Because remember, these people have become these inflated characters. Mm-hmm. They have become as big as like Macy's Day Parade mm-hmm. floats. Mm-hmm floating through our dreamscape, uh, floating through our daily life. He's, you know, the characters in fiction ask something different of us. They ask our, they ask us to think about nuance and about moral ambiguities. And then, and like, it it makes you stop. It makes you stop and think. Like, there were moments reading the book where I had to stop reading and think about moments in my life or people in my life that were like triggered, like those thoughts were triggered to me by this text. And then you, I found myself mentally working through some stuff while reading the book. Oh, I'm, I'm glad to hear and that. that's not a thing you do when you're watching cable news. No, you are passive <laughs> before the, the scroll of stuff that comes mm-hmm. out there. Fiction, there's a collaborative nature to fiction, really, in that when you're, what you just described, when you're reading, I can't control what experiences you've had and therefore you bring to the book. Mm -hmm. Whatever things interest you, what things don't interest you, I'm just putting out there what interests me the most. I mean, people say to writers, write what you know. Mm. I've always felt for me what's more germane is write what obsesses you. Mm. What are the things that you think about all the time? And I say to students when when I teach, what are those things? Because if you're keeping them out of your work, I wonder why. Because that's where, like, the heat is. But, you know, in this moment, that's the thing. It's Mary Gordon, the novelist, who is a great friend of mine, said that the novel is the opposite of a tweet. And I think that's really Mm -hmm. true. You know, look, the novel sometimes is called, you know, a 19th century thing. Mm -hmm. The story told. But I love the another, to quote another writer, I love Emily Dickinson, who had that great line, tell all the truth, but tell it slant. I think novels are tell the truth slant. They Mm -hmm. do tell the truth. They show... What is it like? What is it like out there or in here? Mm-hmm. But they do it in a way. What art does is not give it to you straight on, but give it to you in a sly way, kind of curving, showing us something, say, as you brought up, through one character's point of view. But now, wait a minute, we're seeing it through other, someone else's point of view, and it doesn't look like that at all. Oh, yeah. And a good one, you finish it and you say to yourself, I didn't know this one book was going to give me so much. You know? It it feels like a gift when a novel does do that. Yeah. I mean, you get very excited. You just kind of jump around for a while. Yeah. And I, I just love that about fiction. I A good novel to me is, uh, you know, it's not a place of escape, but it's sometimes you escape, but sometimes it's about diving into yeah. things that are you happening explore. anyway. You yeah. explore. Yeah. The book made me think a lot about the politics of all of these people. It is inherently personal. Yeah. Everything that Greer is doing at that place and then after that, it is informed by her personal life. It yeah. is informed by the attention she lacked as a kid and what Faith gave her. It is informed by the college snafu. Like, And just thinking back today about the state of our politics, yeah. I feel like we as Americans are not seeing the personal and others politics. We're very good, and this is everybody on all the sides, saying if you voted that way you are if you did that thing if you like that one you're bad or you're good and that's it right i think that you know 
in this time of hot takes, yeah. I have a desire to be a master of the warm take. And that is really <laughs> what I try to do here because these characters are not meant to be representative of all mm. young feminists or older feminists. They, they certainly, they couldn't be and I wouldn't want them to be either mm-hmm. because then it's not a novel. But that's right. You know, look, this time of Twitter and saying what you feel, people who can do it well, it is incredible. There, there are powerful things being said. I mean, it's not only novels or tweets. They're yeah. important. There are, of course. I mean, it goes without saying. But to slow down, to write about the intimate ways that people interact and how that informs their politics, mm-hmm. how that informs the decisions they make that are really, really important for the rest of their lives, that's something that I want more of, especially in this moment. Yes. Yeah. Did writing a book that seems to speak so much to feminism make you think anything differently about feminism or lead you to a new realization about the current state of the feminist movement or not really? I think talking to talking to people on I've you know been on a book tour, talking to young women and older women and hearing stories of just this kind of urgency and desire for things to be better more than usual well there i'm talk i can't say because i'm talking to them now yeah. in a way that yeah. usually i'm at home in my bathrobe <laughs> you know going what's a word for whirlpool you know <laughs> what's because i use that word twice in that paragraph i can't yeah. use it a third yeah. time yeah. but when i'm out i don't know i mean more I, than the last book tour maybe even it's different certainly the mm. last the last book the interestings mm-hmm. um you know, dealt with issues about talent over time. And I had a very personal connection to that book because the characters meet at summer camp when they're young and it follows them over almost 40 years. In this case, with The Female Persuasion, it was, instead of the characters all being the same age, there was really a relationship between two generations in the book. Mm -hmm. So right away, I'm in conversation, in a sense, about different eras Mm -hmm. between people who've had different experiences. So that is, I will say this, it's tremendously moving to me Mm. to talk to readers and to hear things, you know, what people think you got right, what their experience was, what feels different to them about the world now. I think that the desire to make change and to sort of speak up about it is tremendous and fabulous. And I, you know, look, when I was growing up, my mother was someone who was very affected by second wave feminism. Mm. She had only had some college courses. Her parents didn't think it was important for girls to go to college, Mm -hmm. so she didn't. She became a writer. She's 88 years old now. She started publishing stories. Yeah, she's still living. She started publishing stories um, in uh, the old Saturday Evening Post, sold her first novel when she was 44, encouraged by the women by women in the women's movement i saw that happen i saw mm. that really happening to her so there's some of her in this book oh without a doubt i mean i i'm very grateful to her she's one of the women on my list of eight dedicates because she's someone who basically sort of never held me back mm. as a writer and i think that was really really important i was very excited as a young feminist talking about things for the first time. I was in a consciousness-raising group. Now, there's a term that you it. don't hear very often, right? <laughs> so um, that scene, it's real. The conscious... Well, it When she's with the ladies for the first time. Well, consciousness-raising like, groups are real. Certainly, oh. that is a made-up scene when okay. they... Yeah, they sing this kind of, I yeah. get to decide. No, it's totally made up. But when I was in my group, we were, you know, we're like 14 years old. Mm-hmm. We're wearing, you know, little tie-dye shirts and and 
you know, buffalo sandals. And we What's were... What's a buffalo sandal? Oh, gosh. Yeah. Oh, I was... I tried to... <laughs> listen, I, this is really pathetic because I switched from saying earth shoes because I thought you wouldn't know what that was. Jerusalem cruises? No. The Jesus know what sandals. I'm talking about. We're like, okay. no. <laughs> buffalo sandals. I'll draw you I'm a Googling picture. Now. You're going to have to Google them. They were like... Um, I, I can't describe them. They were like tan colors. Buffalo sandals. This is so sad. I'm now going to start. Those are low-key Jerusalem cruisers. Are they? So All right, low-key. All right. <laughs> so, my, so in high school, we used to call any kind of leather-bound sandal that could resemble something that you might see in, in the Bible. In like Nazareth. Or, yeah, it's right, right. Cruiser. Yeah. All right. Well, the ones that that we had were a little more, they were like the leather was a little fuzzier. So they looked a little <laughs> different from that. But Okay. Um, so there we were, uh-huh. these girls yeah. sitting around somebody's living room, and we had to make sure that like the parents weren't listening. Really? Oh yeah. Well, yeah, you're 14. <laughs> and there was an there was an implicit sense that what we were saying would not be discussed outside that room. Hmm. And right away, that was incredible, mm-hmm. and, and it wasn't going to be gossiped about with your friend. Mm-hmm. It was not. It was. It was okay to was talk AA. about anything. <laughs> what were you without, about? But, well, that's the thing, actually. Yeah. We wrote away to the National Organization for Women and asked for a list of topics. And they sent us, like, a brochure that had things in it that were, like, sexual, your sexual life. We were a lot, you know, innocent of m- most things in the world. Like, most of us were just sort of starting out in the world. We wanted things like when your parents won't listen or... What does it mean when that boy looks at you? We were, we just didn't, you know, we're 13, 14, however old we were. I can't remember exactly. And I don't know, we talked about a lot of things, but I think what mattered was this sense of kinship. And mm. I use the word sisterhood lately, which is not a word that I've gotten to use mm. without irony for <laughs> a long time. Um, but it's a word that I really believe in because I have been really helped by other women. Okay, time for a break. When we come back, more about Meg's mom and what made Meg the writer she is today. BRB. Support for this podcast and the following message is brought to you by the new Netflix original documentary series, Wild Wild Country. When a controversial guru builds a utopian city near a small town in the Oregon desert, a conflict with local ranchers ensues. As tensions rise, neither group will back down, leading to a series of events, including the first bioterror attack in U.S. history. Wild Wild Country, now streaming only on Netflix. What's unique about the human experience, and what do we all have in common? I'm Guy Raz. Every week on TED Radio Hour, we go on a journey through the big ideas, emotions, and discoveries that fill all of us with wonder. Find it on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts. I've been thinking a lot about the foundation in the book Mm -hmm. and how some of the frustration that Greer has over time is that they are in a place where their work is only really words, right? Yeah. It's it's people talking. Um, We both work in fields where we really only have words. You write, I talk. Sometimes that can feel limiting and it can make you say to yourself, at least me to myself, am I having an impact? What am I doing? Do you get like that sometimes? Oh, absolutely. Uh, It's really, really hard to know what kind of a life should I be leading? Am I making meaning in my life? I mean, the characters really struggle with that. And in fact, actually, it was interesting for me to sort of 
let them do what they need to do. But Corey, the boyfriend in the novel, ends up having a really different kind of life than he anticipated yeah. that he would. I think there are a lot of different ways of making meaning. I mean, you can't you can't take your own pulse and say, am I doing well? But I don't know. We're all we're trying in different ways, I hope. But yeah, yeah. you question it as a writer. Absolutely. You, you question, is this the way, what I should be doing? Is there something more immediate that I should be doing? Yeah. But if I'm going to do the thing that I think I can do better than other things that I tried to do, it would be writing novels. What else did you try to do? Oh, no, I mean, <laughs> thought about trying to do. What did you think about trying to do? No, no, nothing, nothing. So I, I'm gonna. I, the minute I said that, I thought <laughs> I'm backing away from that. Yeah, like the Wait, time what? that I was, the time that I was a physician. No, <laughs> I no. I mean, but like, I thought I guess, about. What you think about? Okay, before writing? I've thought about. Go- I thought about going to medical school. Really, actually, and I really can't do science or math, which Same. is an. You know, I used to be really good at math. And I just stopped caring. You were good. But you see, you had it in you to be good at I, it. I was good at math. Yeah. And then around high school, I was like, nah, buddy, it's English class. That's, That's where right. it's at. Well, it's kind of the idea of having to choose one way, sort of that road, mm-hmm. that right? And yeah. the idea of are you a word person or are you a numbers person? It's this whole Myers-Briggs industrial complex. Uh, yes, you're yes, this, you're, you're, this, this, you're that, you're that, no. you're this. No, you can be a lot of different You can be a lot of things. And I... You know, I had a lot of I had a lot of excitement about things, but I I think the idea of medicine, um, I don't know. Do you think it's too late for me? No. What kind of doctor would you have been? Or Psychiatrist. Would you be? Oh. Yeah. I, um, yeah. I can see you being re- really good at that because I can already tell you're the kind of person that is very very good. One about using her words very judiciously, and two like never passing judgment. I'm so. I've tried a few times to, to get, get me to pass this. judgment. No, to say something incendiary about politics. Or what did you think of that pair of shoes that that woman <laughs> was wearing? And I just did not you rise. Didn't, you didn't. You didn't. Bite no, that I book. think you know, but but it's not. It's not about rising to the occasion. I think I'm kind of like looking at the occasion. That's which what is I, necessary. And now. I think that and and also with the psychiatrist, sort of people in emotional pain. Um, it's not like you can come in and I think take people's pain away, but I think that my I have a couple of friends who are psychiatrists, and I, I've it's been really interesting to me to talk about their work with them. The idea of getting people to sort of look at things more directly than they've been willing to do mm-hmm. um, is again, it's not that dissimilar to the project of fiction. Mm. So passing judgment. What that does for mm-hmm. me is it closes doors. Yeah. It closes doors right away. Yeah. So the questions that you've asked me, I mean, I like looking at them. It's like examining uh, it, uh, something from a lot of different angles. And I think that that's something that I that I do like to try to do. I like that. I do want to talk more about your mother, who you sure. mentioned a little bit. I heard somewhere that because she was a writer when you were a kid... It, like, helped you get access to books. Oh, yeah. I grew up... I was really fortunate. Where'd you grow up? For I grew up on Long Island. Okay. Um, Where on Long Island? Syosset. Exit okay. 43. Okay. The LIE. Okay. Uh, I grew up in this house in the suburbs, and my mother was trying to be a writer when I was young, and my father... Both of my parents are living. My father is a retired psychologist and a school psychologist, and they both loved fiction. Yeah. So I don't know if some of it is sort of in my brain, yeah. but... You know, there was a, you know, in the den, 
we had some of my father's books that were like, you know, like sexuality, 18 case studies. And I really got an education reading those. I bet. (laughs) And Salinger and all different kinds of books that I read when I was young. And uh, That's a gift. It's an incredible gift, actually, because they're there. Although someone said, and I'm not sure who it was who said this. It might have been Jonathan Franzen, but probably not. I don't know. Um, That the idea of the book as something that is sort of like an illicit thing that people might take away from you. Like if parents say, shut that light off, you then want to go back to the book. Mm -hmm. So there's a way in which my parents were like, read, festival of reading, here, everything you want. You need to find your way in that sometimes involves things that they may not want you to read. Mm -hmm. Like my sister and I reading, you know, sort of, junky books for a while you mm-hmm. know, or salacious books things that we wanted to read as well as reading the good stuff and your parents wouldn't ding you for those either well they didn't know <laughs> they're going to know now but I am too old for them yeah. to be mad at me for yeah. reading The Happy Hooker by Xavier Hollander <laughs> which is something I did read it's okay I'm telling you. What what was that I heard? Y'all, you know, y'all had like a special dispensation at the library. Because yes. Your mom oh, was right. A yes. Yes. That's what it was. So, because my mother was a writer, we on Friday nights we had this big sort of Wallitzer family thing that we would do. We'd go out for Chinese food, and this is like before Chinese food was sophisticated. It was like Egg Foo Young era of Chinese food. Fine with that. Very, you know, yeah. it was delicious. And then we would go to Baskin Robbins, and then we would go to the library, and because my mother was a writer. They let us take out as many books as we wanted. So I would just have everything from, you know, Judy Bloom and uh, all books. I, I One of my favorite series of books, you want, Cherry Ames, Student Nurse, Cherry Ames, Cruise Nurse. And they let us take mm. out as many as we wanted. And I felt so sophisticated. I thought we were kind of like the Kennedy family, kind of it. like sauntering around <laughs> Hyannis for it. After Basket Robbins. Right, exactly, right. <laughs> I felt so important that we were allowed to do this. But, you know, not everybody feels about books the way readers feel about books. Not yeah. everybody cares about them yeah. in that way. Yeah. When I was a kid. So I I had a boxcar children kit. Oh, I love the boxcar yeah. children. Yeah. And we were raised black Pentecostal and apostolic. So church services were long. Yeah. And I would love to bring the boxcar children to church because for whatever reason, the way the covers of these books I was reading were, were colored and written, everyone thought I was just reading the Bible the whole oh, time. Oh, that is really great. Right, because they had the... Co- that's right. That's so... That's I was amazing. like, oh, he's reading the children's Bible. Very, very, I very I was clever. so proud of myself. The books that you read as a child, I think, stay with you forever. I mean, forever. The fir- Char- Charlotte's Web was the first book I ever cried at. Yeah. Because the idea of, you know, a pig and a spider being friends... Yeah. Um, it, it, you make that narrative leap to wait a minute. These have these are human yes. characters, yeah. and again, there's that idea of sort of creating empathy. Mm-hmm. The idea of sort of crying over the death of this spider. I mean, being inconsolable about it, really yeah. thinking about it forever. It's so strong, and I don't know any writers who weren't big readers when they were young. Whether they read, you know, because the books were taken away, or people who had no, who had very few books in their houses, mm-hmm. um, discovering books later. Those yeah. stories are incredible oh, yeah. too. Yeah. yeah, the one for me that out that is always like related to everything else. Everything else. It's probably Animal Farm. Yes, I think. Is- I, Everything can be drawn back to some of the lessons and morals and themes in that book. I know. The books that you read, I mean, I think about them all the time. They thread through my dreams, through my Mm -hmm. life, Mm -hmm. forever, really. So the climax of this book is this really intense scene 
where Greer and Faith, they have this big blow up in their relationship. And it is mm-hmm. driven by all of these generational differences and conflicts we've been talking about. But what that scene confirmed for me is that sometimes people don't just slide out of your life. Sometimes it has to end badly. Yeah. Sometimes it has to be a blow up. What were you trying to do with that scene where this relationship falls apart in a nasty way? Well, can I can can I answer that by reading you one line from the yes. very beginning of the book? Yeah. Because I I'm glad I brought it in here. Yeah, me too, because I you know, I don't I don't have any copies. <laughs> I don't I don't read this kind of thing. I, I don't care I don't care for fiction. <laughs> um yeah, so that's uh, actually two lines. I'm sorry. Oh, it's okay. oh three lines. Yeah. It's actually 90 lines. Is that all right? <laughs> well, Do you have 40 minutes? Time. Can it's I read? It's a podcast. Okay, cool. as long as you it's want. actually a week. It's a marathon. It's kind of Bloomsday <laughs> reading right now that uh-huh. I'm going to do. Okay. Greer, this is when they first meet, yeah. uh, when Faith comes to speak at the college, yeah. and and she shows an interest in Greer, who mm-hmm. is just electrified. Yeah. Greer didn't really know why Faith took an interest. But what she knew for sure eventually was that meeting Faith Frank was the thrilling beginning of everything. It would be a very long time before the unspeakable end. So, first mm. of all, I'm so sorry if I... you call it unspeakable right there. I call it right there. I didn't catch I, that until yeah, you yeah, yeah. for me. Oh, but you caught it without knowing it. See, this uh, is this was my evil plan. Okay. What I wanted to do at the beginning was that kind of line is really what I sort of sometimes jokingly call the little did she know kind of yeah. school of writing that I try to do very, very infrequently yeah. because it's just jumping ahead there. Yeah. But what it says to the reader, and then you didn't remember it, yeah. but it puts something, it just sort of plants it, plants the notion in there that this relationship, weak, it allows me as a writer to go in a lot of directions because somehow we're going to get back to the unspeakable end. We know right away it's going to end. And you mm. may have forgotten it, but it was there. Yeah. And uh, most relationships in life don't end in a fiery way. They, as you say, just kind of like sometimes they drift away. One thing that they don't tell you in childhood, in fact, about friendship, if you look at, if you were to sort of look at television and film to understand friendship, you would think that you and your friends get together in a group, mm-hmm. like every Friday night, yeah. like friend sex time. in the city, friend time <laughs> yeah. and drinks, and yeah. then you track it and you're always there for one another yeah. no you can go a very long time without seeing someone mm-hmm. but it doesn't mean you're not friends mm-hmm. and then you pick up and then maybe you never see them again mm-hmm. there are a lot of different trajectories here I think because the relationship starts with such a there's such a fixedness of who they are to each other how can it last at mm. that way it's going to change That's it's going to be fluid and I think that in fact the funny thing about the relationship between and I'm using these terms loosely a mentor and a protege yeah. is that first of all it's all about the young one you know mm. it's not like faith tell me you know things about you no because you wouldn't dare to ask the older person you admire personal questions yeah. because but they're up on a pedestal that you don't need to be on yet there's not a lot of room on a pedestal for movement mm. for re- realness there isn't or for two people or for two people yeah. right no room you're up on the pet that one person's up on the pedestal the other one is looking up and saying tell me how to live and while you're at it who should i call will you look at my resume will yeah. you give will you write me a recommendation yeah. you know the older ones are writing the recommendations for the younger ones. So the, the flow goes in that direction. Mm-hmm. I think for a narrative arc to be set, for a narrative to be satisfying, you're going to see some kind of change at the end. And it happened. It happened. It really happened. I remember uh, 
when I was young and I sold my first novel, mm-hmm. I went back to the school where I grew up, my mm-hmm. elementary school, and my favorite teacher was there. And I fully expected her to kind of like celebrate and sing me, you know, yeah. that I, and she did. And that was wonderful. I'd sold my novel young and it was wonderful. Mm-hmm. But then she pulled me aside and she said, would you look at my writing? And I was huh. really taken aback yeah. because she was changing the terms. Wait a minute. that I it didn't sign on for that. It doesn't work that yeah. way, lady. Who are yeah. you? But in fact, why, why shouldn't she? Why shouldn't she ask me to do that? Because the notion that we have a fixed role and we have to carry out that role forever, mm-hmm. that's not reality. It's not life. That's not life. And I was threatened and moved ultimately by that. And I thought about that, I think, when I had to have them kind of have, of course, this that wasn't a showdown. I, I didn't have a showdown with her. But I wanted to show change. And there something had to shake them up at the end of the book. There's this quote in the book where you talk about the way that when you get older, you have to be so much more guarded with intimacy. Yeah. I remember being in college. Uh, I wanted to be everyone's best friend. And I That's wanted right. to have such deep connections with everyone I met. And now I'm like, mm, I don't have... You don't I, have your I, I can't give you Well, all that. you start to think, you start to think as you get older, how do I want to spend my time? Yes. Like I when I remember my my husband and I have been married a long time, but when we were first living together and we're both writers, it was like the middle of the day and we we're watching the game show network. Now, yes. it's the middle of a beautiful work day, <laughs> right? And we're like watching not only the game, we're watching like old Which one? The worst Okay. I like you the, never heard of this one. I used to watch no. a lot of old stuff. Bumper Stumpers. No, I never heard of that one. <laughs> what is Bumper Stumpers? Horrible. It had like um, license plates and you had to guess like what they were referring to. It was like some hard... It didn't last. Yeah. See, my favorite... Let's make a deal. I love that one. My favorite old one was uh, Press Your Luck. Oh, no whammy, no you know, whammy, no whammy, well, you remember the Press Your Luck scandal, right? No. That this... The game. One of the contestants was able to game the system about like where the whammies would be or when to no press, way. and was able to win some amazing amount of money. Uh, yeah, so you. It actually probably would have behooved me to continue to do that because <laughs> as a writer, I could have made a lot more money had I understood where yeah. the whammies were. But all I wanted to say about that is that we thought we were immortal. I mean, when I was young, I I wanted to write and be ambitious, partly because. I, you know, thought life would never end. Yeah. Now that I'm older and I know it does, I still want to do a lot. Yeah. I still want to do a lot, but for a very, very different reason. And you got to, and you just got to protect it more. You got, you, you definitely protect your time more. You can't talk to everybody. One of the things about writing a novel is that people can read it and it's not exclusionary. It's sort of saying, you know, and if people find your book at a library or a bookstore or somebody passes it on to them, books are for everyone and you you don't have to be guarded, but books are a conversation and it yeah. continues. I am so glad that we got this time to talk. I thank you for your book and the feels it made me feel. No, oh, thank you so much. Thank you. I'm going to have you sign this book now. All right, for real. <laughs> That was Meg Wallitzer. Her book is called The Female Persuasion. Special thanks to two NPR colleagues, Rose Friedman and Barry Hardiman. They uh, steered Meg our way. Thanks for that. Listeners, as always, want you to share with us the best thing that's happening to you all week. Record yourself. Send the file to me, samsanders at npr.org, samsanders at npr.org. All right, and one more thing. If you haven't heard already, we're doing a live show soon going to be in Chicago live on May 15th at the Old Town School of Folk Music. We're going to have special guests. 
join us. Tickets are already on sale. From what I've heard, it's probably going to sell out, so get them quick. You can go to wbez.org slash events to get yours. wbez.org slash events. All right, I'm so excited to see you all there. It's going to be a great time. I love Chicago, and I love meeting all of you in person. All right, we are back on Friday. Thanks for listening. Talk soon. We'll be right back. 